I used to run cross country and track in high school. And my coach would always say, don't look behind you. You'll slow down. So just keep your head pointed forward and sense what competition is doing, but don't focus on it too much because you'll lose track of where you're going. Of course, you can learn a lot from other products in the ecosystem and see how the consumer tastes are adjusting. But I think that's a bit different than focusing on your direct competition and getting into a myopic state of, oh, we got to build this because they did. I think that's counterproductive. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. Hey everyone, welcome to In-Depth. I'm Todd Jackson. I'm a partner here at First Round, and I'm guest hosting a few product-focused episodes this season, all about finding product market fit. Today's episode is with Andrew Ofsted, co-founder of Airtable. Before starting the company in 2012, he was a product manager at Google, where he worked on Android and Maps. In our conversation, we go deep into Airtable's early days and how they navigated the journey to product market fit. We start with how the founders came together, their vision for the product, and what the initial prototypes looked like. As Andrew puts it, they had a long gestation period instead of the lean startup, fail fast approach that was so popular at that time. After breaking down their alpha, beta, and launch timelines, we also dive into the challenges of creating a horizontal product that can do many things, from identifying initial use cases to figuring out how to describe what they were building. Andrew tells us about what their early traction looked like and recounts the moment when he realized they had product market fit. He also shares some interesting thoughts on how to approach pricing and competition early on. As we get to the growth phase of Airtable's story, we talk about how their go-to-market strategy developed, who they hired, and what, if anything, he might do differently. And finally, Andrew shares more about what the next three years will look like for Airtable and how they've navigated scaling while staying true to their vision. I think Airtable is such an interesting example to learn from. And there are tons of tactics here that go much deeper than the typical founding stories you hear. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And now on to my conversation with Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, Todd. Thanks for having me. I'm excited in today's show to go really deep into the early days of Airtable, specifically on product design and go-to-market. There's so much that gets glossed over when you hear about founding stories. And the founders I'm working with today really want to hear the tactics, how to think about their first MVP, how to figure out their ideal customer profile, how to identify the right growth model. Airtable is such an interesting example to learn from because it's so difficult to build you know, a big, horizontal, powerful product. And you've obviously had a lot of success with it over the last 10 years. So to rewind back to the beginning, Andrew, I've heard you tell the story of how Airtable got started, about how you met your co-founders in college. But for those who aren't familiar, could you give a quick recap? Going way back, we met at Duke. Myself and Howie and Emmett, we were all the tech nerds there. This is back in the days, I think we probably met in 2005, when the established path was very much banking, consulting, or med school. We were the weirdos that liked to talk about programming and video games and this place called Silicon Valley that wasn't on the radar of most Duke students. Started reading Hacker News when that first came out, and we'd get lunch and jam and ideas and just were good friends. 
After college, we went our separate ways. I got this job at Accenture. They have this R&D department they called Tech Labs. And my job there was building demos and prototypes of iPhone apps. And that might have even been before the App Store was out. But demos of cool things for our customers. Howie was a year below me at Duke. And I got him his first job at Accenture. I put in a good word. My manager was like, all right, this guy looks solid. Let's hire him. And the first day, he actually didn't show up to work. I just had this empty desk next to me. And I'm like, where's Howie? And he called me frantic. And he's like, I decided last minute, I really want to do this startup. And so I'm not coming to work. So burned some bridges there. But that was the first attempt to work together. And he actually tried to convince me to work with him on that company. But I just started this job. So it didn't make the leap. Later on, Howie's company was bought by Salesforce. I was a APM at Google and in the PM rotation program there. I worked on Android for a year and Maps for a few years. Eventually, we were both in the place where we were at Salesforce and Google, respectively, as product managers, decided we wanted to take the leap together and start working on Airtable. And the rest is history from there. But it took us another year to convince Emmett, who was our third friend from Duke, to join us. And he was the best programmer we knew. We eventually convinced him and he joined us about a year later. But that's the short backstory on how we got started. Can you talk about where you got the idea for Airtable? What was the early vision that you all had? Yeah, the early vision was very much to try to democratize software creation. And we had this crazy superpower of being able to build software that we had loved and had given us all these advantages in our careers. You could just have this tremendous influence through software. You can build something and deploy it to people, and it's very cheap to do within an organization. You can have a lot of influence, even if you're not in a leadership position. A lot of the broad vision was how do we make software creation easier for non-programmers? A lot of the inspiration too was thinking over the course of computing history. And there's very much the early days of computing, which was all about command lines and doing these arcane commands. And that's how you operated a computer. It was only through the hard work of the early Xerox Park and the GUI and Apple Mac to take that computing and make it more accessible to everybody. Very much we're inspired by that. And how do we take software creation and programming and make that more accessible to a much larger audience? Early on is very much an intellectual pursuit of wanting to learn more about the history of software and how the GUI was invented and so on and so forth. We all had a passion for that and wanted to do the same thing for software to give everybody a software stack they can build useful software on top of. There's a lot of founders, I'd say, just getting started with their companies today and attempting to validate the idea they're pursuing. Did you three do anything in the early days of Airtable to help prove to yourself that it was a good idea? We were a bit contrarian in that way, I would say. At the time, it was very much about the lean startup and getting early customer validation and failing fast. And a lot of companies were pivoting every three months. There was this book, Making the Circles, called The Seven Steps to the Epiphany that very much espoused this lean company development model where you put out a super rough prototype to get to know the customer and quickly pivot if it's not looking like it's going to stick. We took more of a first principles approach. Didn't want to throw spaghetti at the wall with the company. Like I said before, we were really interested in this general space of software creation and how do you take a database and programming and make it way easier and more accessible. And intellectually, we're excited about going down that path. We spent a lot of time early on doing research, almost like on a sabbatical, reading all this prior art of old computing pioneers like the Douglas Engelbarts and the Bill Atkinsons who helped invent the GUI reading lots of essays on that, playing with old products like HyperCard that had flavors of software creation for everybody. And even more contemporaries like Brett Victor read a lot about how to visualize complex systems, a passion of learning and understanding the prior art. Simultaneously, how he was at Salesforce, where his company was acquired, learned more about the enterprise software market and saw that most business applications out there are essentially just databases and views and business logic on top. And there's a lot of reinventing the wheel and vertical software. 
we saw the business potential there where Salesforce was this giant platform. It's more or less just a flexible database, but you have to be an advanced admin to understand how to configure it and to build it. We saw the potential of opening up that type of software creation to a much larger market. Spent a lot of time thinking about what is the market for this? Let's think about spreadsheets. They've been around forever, but they are the killer app. But most of the time, the way people use them is to track objects. They're tracking people, companies, simple tables, and they're not doing modeling and number crunching, which is what they are invented for. We have this long, early gestation period where we did our research on the technological challenge, the market and precedence before us, and saw that we could build a big company here. That put us in the right mindset to say, this might take a long time to do. Let's make sure we're dedicated to it and informed a lot of the ways we built the company in the early days. From the very beginning, you were committed to this idea of software creation for everybody. You had done the research, you knew it was a really big market, and you were in it for the long haul from the beginning. Yeah, definitely. It would have been hard to get that level of conviction without having that period of going deep in the problem, without having formally broken ground on building the product and trying to get customers. So we took our time early on to make sure that it's something we were committed to. And I think that was super helpful. And obviously it helped that we were friends. But if you're going to do like we did and tackle a horizontal product that is pretty hard to market and get started and has a lot of stuff that has to be built to get to MVP, I'd recommend taking that time to make sure that you're dedicated and make sure you're super interested in the problem space and like the people you're working with. Related to that, I think I've heard you say that you optimized in the early days for raising larger amounts of money, even if it meant more dilution. And simultaneously, you kept your burn rate down because you knew Airtable was going to be this long journey, big product to build. Can you tell us about that strategy and what advice you'd give to founders who are looking for ways to stretch their runway now? For us, it was very much at any given point, we were trying to figure out what we had to de-risk in order to get to the next stage for the company. Initially, very early on, it's like, how do we actually make this database accessible to normal people and non-programmers? So it was all about, can we actually take this and make it easy to use, iterate on a prototype, getting lots of feedback, trying to de-risk that? That's something that's really hard to parallelize. It takes a team of a few people daily working on it and getting feedback and iterating. And you can't hire a bunch of engineers to make that go faster. The early challenges we had necessitated having a small focused team. And actually, it would have been counterproductive to try to scale it up a lot more because we needed to nail that foundation of the database. Everything else was built on top of that. So if we would have hired a bunch of people to build stuff on top of the early foundation we had, it would have slowed us down those iterations and it would have been harder to be nimble and change the direction of that foundation. The long runway was both a function of we raised a lot of money, but also we wanted to be super lean and focused on de-risking the main risk for the company as early as possible and only parallelized once we knew that we had a good foundation to build on. And that meant that we had a lot longer runway to use. So what did the first version of Airtable actually look like? What were you trying to accomplish with the early prototypes? The first version was very much trying to prove that we can make a database easy to use. It was actually very much like a prototype. A lot of smoke and mirrors. We focused 100% on the product and the UI and the interactions. We didn't really have a backend. It was just persisting to local store in the browser, just enough to make sure we could test the interactions and get to a point where people could actually use it and play with it and say, hey, I'm confused. How do I create a view or linked record relationship? Something where we could put it in front of people and ask them to try to organize something and see if they could actually do it. So that was very much the goal of the very early version. In terms of what it looked like, the earliest version looked a lot like a spreadsheet. It was a database underneath, obviously, but we took this approach of co-opting the spreadsheet interface, which is familiar to most knowledge workers and built a lot of the same interactions, but we had typed fields and we had tables you could link between and foreign key relationships. 
But it took us a lot of iterations to differentiate it and make it feel different and look different and communicate to users right away that this is not just a spreadsheet, but the early version was this grid. Not too different from what it looks like today in our grid view, but a lot of subtleties of how you set up things like queries and foreign key relationships. Those are the things we really had to iterate on to make it obvious to early users how you actually set those up as a departure from the spreadsheet. So you had some of those concepts that you still have today, like views, related rows, all of those things were in the initial prototype? Definitely. They went through a lot of iterations. The very early version views were done in a different way and linked records were kind of confusing. It took us a long time to make those things more obvious. One example is most databases have foreign keys and the way you join two tables together is you write a query. That was kind of abstract and hard for people to figure out. So we took a very different approach of thinking of them more as here's a field where you link two records in a different table. We went through a lot of iterations to make that very visual. So for example, instead of when you link to a different record, making it more of a grid, we made it more of each record as its own card to reinforce that this isn't just a sea of cells in a spreadsheet, but instead each row represents an object in the real world and making those very visual and showing they're almost like physical cards or objects. We did a lot of bordering on skeuomorphic things, reinforce the database structure to differentiate us from the grid spreadsheet model. Subtle iterations like that that helped convey those points to our early customers. When you put this prototype in front of people, there were a lot of database concepts baked in from the very beginning. Did people know what to do with this? The early users, when you put it in their hands, what did they do with it? It depended. Like Early on, 9 out of 10 people would look at it and say, hey, it's a spreadsheet. I know how to use a spreadsheet. But then they'd get confused when it didn't match what they'd expected to do, or they just didn't know what to do with it. Like, should I organize this or that? For a lot of people, it just didn't click early on. It took us doing things like building templates and translating the product into a use case they could understand for it to click with them. We definitely did have an early adopter crowd initially that understood the structure of a database more and it clicked with them didn't even really mean that they were programmers or database people. It was just this persona of tinker, person that's very structured in their thinking that clicked with Airtable. And they would say, oh, this is awesome. Now I can organize my apartment hunt, or I can start tracking my contacts here for a very lightweight CRM. For some people, it's just a certain mindset where it clicked. They thought in this more structured, almost database way. Very early on, those were the customers where we would put it in front of them and they'd say, oh, awesome. I'm going to start keeping track of this thing and that thing. We had a friend, Najib, who was a video producer, and he saw it. He's like, oh my God, I'm going to start tracking my video productions here. Created a table of all his cast, all his crew, linked them together. So a lot of customers needed handholding to tell them what to do with it. But for some, it just clicked and we saw how they used the product and leaned into their feedback for how to improve it from there. Tell us about that path from these early prototypes to the first version of Airtable that you considered launch ready. What did your first launch look like? We had a slow path to launch, I would say. We separated the concept of trying to get feedback from customers and to refine the product from the concept of public launch. Very early on, we had a private alpha where we'd get friends to use it and we ourselves would use it. We'd sit down with those customers, see what they're using the product for. And eventually we felt like we're in a good place. Was that like 10 people, 20 people at that time? A hundred people or so. But the thing with the horizontal product is that you build this very generic thing. And the cool part is seeing how people use it. We built this very horizontal product and then rolled it out to more and more people over time. We had a beta eventually. With each one of those iterations where we get more customers, we would see new pockets of use. And as we added new features, we unlock new use cases. It was a slow roll of add this calendar view. Suddenly we see people using it for marketing use cases, add this Kanban, and people are using it for project management or managing processes and pipelines. 
The MVP for our product was not any one thing. It's a horizontal product. So you're constantly unlocking new use cases. Eventually, we get to a spot where we felt comfortable putting it into beta and trying to get some more customers. That was just our gut and seeing that it's resonating with our earlier customers and feeling ready from a standpoint of, can we handle the potential traffic? And do we have the features so people won't lose data and it's not going to be a big headache for us to recover it? Even when we were in the alpha stages, constantly trying to find new customers and grow. But timing the launches and the going from beta to public launch, more about the readiness of taking on that extra traffic more than anything. So you went from alpha to beta to public launch. I assume alpha was invite only. Was beta invite only also? Alpha was invite only, but you could refer other people. That helped us get some organic growth there. Not a ton, but we'd invite somebody to get super excited about it. They'd add somebody else to their base, and then maybe that person would build something else. So we saw some traction from that. Beta publicly, we launched on Hacker News 2014, 2015, kept it as beta to give us an opportunity to have a bigger public press launch later on and put the beta tag on in case things didn't work right or it seemed somewhat half-baked. So we had a alpha, then beta, then public launch. There was quite a bit of time between each of those, but we definitely tried to acquire customers and learn from them as much as possible between each of those milestones. How long was the alpha and how long was the beta? We probably didn't even call it alpha initially. It's just we used it ourselves. We gave some customers, but probably a year or two, maybe even two or three years, quite a while. We had to build so many features to get to something useful. And we had commitment to the long-term and pretty good runway where we're in the mode of let's build and de-risk the core challenges. It seemed like launching the product publicly wouldn't really get us more data there or accelerate the path to that. We took our time with those early alpha beta periods because we felt like we were getting the customer learning. We felt like we were very focused and could build efficiently. Maybe we waited a bit too long. We probably could have launched earlier and cut some features. But for the most part, we got the learning and we launched when we were ready. And in hindsight, that worked out, but there's probably a place we could have gone faster. During that beta period, I'm always curious about horizontal products. How did you explain what Airtable was to people? When you posted the beta on Hacker News, Airtable is a what? We mixed a few things and it was super hard. It was hard to describe the product. That's one of the hardest parts of a horizontal product. But we had a couple messages. One was, this is a way for you to build software. Very early on, we were mostly just a database. We hadn't built things like automations and a lot of different views and interfaces and so on. But that's how we framed the mission. And then separately, we'd say it's kind of like a spreadsheet database hybrid, or it's like a spreadsheet with power of a database. So the way our customers would describe us would be, it's like a easy to use database, or it's a spreadsheet plus plus. We always try to describe the broader mission and vision and would mix those two together. But yeah, it was tough. Over the years, we've gotten more and more focused on how we describe the problems we solve and the use cases we're good for. But early on, is very much database spreadsheet, slightly more sophisticated early adopter audience that resonated with. So it worked out, but it's always been a struggle for us. Over the course of the alpha, over the course of the beta, was there a moment where you were like, I think we have product market fit. Something's starting to work here. There's a lot of different milestones I think of in terms of product market fit. Initially, seeing one person getting value out of the product, like our friend Najib, who's using us for video production. And then you see a team using us and getting value out of it. We had a nonprofit that was like 10 or 15 people that started using us early on for managing all their applicants. Where I really felt like we had product market fit is when we had our first customer, where the customer was WeWork. We landed with them and it grew virally within the company and went more or less wall to wall. That's one of the most visceral memories I have of Airtable and thinking, oh my God, we've actually built something that might make it. I did this customer tour, 
to New York after having mostly interacted with customers over the sport channel and that type of thing over Zoom. I visited WeWork and I looked around and everybody's computer monitor had Airtable open. And I was like, oh my God, this is actually a thing. People use it. It became so much more real at that point. That's when we started to see product market fit is both when we saw a few companies and where we expanded wall to wall, but also certain industries and functions. So for example, media, we were being used for video production a lot. Marketing teams, a lot of companies were being used. Seeing repeatable cases of us landing within those industries and functions and then expanding within a company. That's the growth engine that we live by today. That was the first case where it really felt like product market fit. At that point, you double down those customers, become 100% customer obsessed on them. And that's the path we've been on for the past three, four years. That's amazing. You had these individual user use cases from video, a nonprofit, and then all of a sudden you go viral inside a company and hundreds of people are using it inside the company. Did that snowball? Did a lot of companies start to pick it up pretty quickly? Yeah, it snowballed. I think it happens in a lot of different S-curves. We started seeing media companies where we spread word of mouth or the head of production would go from Netflix to some other company and they bring the tool with them. So you see industries or functions where you get word of mouth adoption, more and more of those. And then you start seeing more expansion within companies. It wasn't any one point it built over time. You'd had these growth curves layer on top of each other. Obviously, it starts very slow. But then at a certain point for us, 2018 or so, starts to really inflect. A combination of us building more capabilities that unlocked more use cases and having the maturity to expand within companies and getting these pockets of word of mouth virality within these different industries and functions that all layered together to cause pretty solid growth in the past five years. At any point, did you guys internally do anything to capitalize or engineer, drive that word of mouth yourself? Or was it the product doing all that? It was mostly the product the nature of the product is that somebody builds something in Airtable, whether it's a product roadmap tracker or a marketing calendar, and they share that with people and their team and their department to do critical work. Once people start doing work in it, it generates useful data. So you suddenly have your product roadmap in it, or you have your marketing calendar. Other people want to consume that. So people invite them to the base that shows that. What we describe internally as golden data sets, things that are really important critical data sets for the company. And once you have that, you get a lot of viral adoption on top of that and other teams building workflows off of that. There's a lot we're doing in the product to make it better for enterprises and help support them in building these golden data sets, which are incredibly valuable, and then letting other teams build on top of them in a safe way. But yeah, I would say mostly in product, there's some stuff we did with referral bonuses that maybe helped a little bit, but probably not too much. It was mostly by nature of the product being very collaborative by its nature that I think helped us the most. Were there points in the product evolution where you felt like, hey, we actually just have to make this UI simpler or we have to evolve this UI into something that's just more natural for people? There's a few examples of that. One is that initially, a lot of people just felt like Airtable is a spreadsheet, especially in the early days. We had text and number cells. We slowly started to make the product look more visual. So adding fields that were very obviously image attachments or fields that were colored select options, that all helped convey. This is different than a spreadsheet. These are columns that have a specific type that's very visual. And I think things like adding different views. So not only can you see your records in a grid, but you can see a calendar and you can transform them. You can view them on a timeline or a gallery. That all helped convey that mental model of you're dealing with records, not a spreadsheet. Making it super visual was one thing that really helped and we leaned into for quite a while. 
there's a certain aspect of delight of being able to configure something and change the colors and make it truly yours that we leaned into a lot and was super important to us. We wanted to give people the same feeling we have when we create something in software where you're like, oh, I created this thing. It's awesome. I customized it. I want to share it with people, show off what I've done. The subtle stuff of the visual aspects and conveying difference from a beige spreadsheet or your traditional productivity tool went a long way as well. I don't remember when you guys added it, but dragging images into cells, dragging attachments into cells, one of the coolest things about Airtable, that was a real aha moment for me. When was that? That was pretty early on. From day one, we've been pretty huge on direct manipulation and making it feel like you could reach out and touch your data, for lack of a better phrase. But when we built first attachments, it came with the drag and drop functionality. And we wanted it to feel super interactive and to feel like it's alive and real time and put a lot of effort into the real-time architecture. So if you drag an attachment on, it pops up in the other person's screen immediately. There's a lot of work we did there. That direct manipulation also helps you to build a better mental model for how Airtable operates. So for example, if you edit a field, if you change the type, immediately seeing all the cells below it changing from a select value to a text field, having that visual change reinforces what's going to happen when you make that change. So we did a lot around the delightful stuff, drag and dropping attachments, animations to make things clear, trying to make the whole experience real smooth and fast and direct. That was really important to us early on. Yeah, so much attention to detail in everything that you just described. I feel like that is something that not very many companies have. You guys have always had it. Where does that come from, that attention to detail and getting all those little interactions right? As Airtable grows, especially and adds more folks internally, how do you scale that value? It's largely the function of we really cared about it, got excited about it, and it's what we wanted to do. You know, We loved the little things and we are super into subtle animations and a deep appreciation for that and studied the best products out there, whether it be Apple, iOS. Trello was an early example of something that was very direct and had this good dragon action. So we just really appreciated that stuff. And a lot of times probably spent too much time on it. It started to permeate our culture and you want to make sure the first few people you hire, if that is important to you, have the same sensibilities. There's a lot we've done to keep the bar high in our hiring, but you want to set that seat early. And I think a lot of it comes from what we cared about and what we enjoyed doing as a founding team. One question that I wanted to ask you that I know a lot of early stage founders think about is pricing and when you actually start to charge for the product. I get questions all the time. When should I start charging for my freemium product? How much should I charge? Should I charge everyone? Should I keep parts of the product free? When did you guys start thinking about that and how did you approach it in the early days? Yeah, it's something we definitely thought about from the earliest days, even our alpha or the first pockets of users we had. We had a pricing page and we had a few different plans that mostly would describe features we hadn't built yet, but we at least wanted to frame that this is a product we're going to charge for. And here's the basic seat-based pricing model. And we chose price points that we thought made sense. The way we chose those is not super scientific, but partially from a positioning standpoint, how do we position against the value we think we'll bring to companies? We price more against the sales forces and service nows of the world as opposed to Evernote or Dropbox because we did anticipate that people build applications that power important processes and companies on Airtable. So we want to price accordingly. The thing we didn't build for quite a while is the actual billing system to charge our customers. And we actually had a place where customers could voluntarily put their credit card in. It was buried in one of our setting pages, but we didnn't charge them. We just hadn't built the billing system yet. We were actually amazed because some of our customers actually found this and put their credit cards in and then complained to us they didn't get charged and they were worried that Airtable would disappear. Oh, wow. So that's when we're like, oh, I guess we're leaving money on the table. Let's build the actual billing system. We're building pricing from a marketing standpoint and from, hey, this business is going to be around. We're here to build a durable business, but didn't actually start pulling in the revenue until later on. That was our sequencing. 
It sounds like the way you approached it is you wanted the pricing plans in there early, but it was almost so that customers would understand that there would be paid plans and they could have faith in Airtable being around and to learn as much as you could from them. Did you approach it not for profit, but for learning for several years? Totally. Yeah, that was exactly it. I think I would be skeptical myself if I started using a product and it's not clear how they're making money. I'd be like, are they going to sell my data? Are they going to totally price gouge later on? I think that transparency is actually good for the customer too and makes them more likely to trust the product. We skipped over funding rounds also, but in these first few years, were there particular metrics that you were optimizing for? And what were the metrics that you felt lined up with whenever you raised your Series A, your Series B, et cetera? We were primitive with our metrics early on. We had some basic dashboards. The more important thing we did, at least internally, this is outside of the funding environment, but we had things instrumented so we'd get a notification every time somebody signed up. We had a dashboard where we could see who is actually using the product in a given moment. And that was more about the visceral feeling of sensing that people are using the product. And every day you want to see more people using the product, so it's a good motivator. But yeah, in the early days, I think we paid more attention to individuals and teams and how they were getting value from the product than we did any set of metrics. We have automation that would send out personalized emails whenever somebody signed up and offer to meet with us and do a feedback session. So we spent a lot of time understanding how people were using the product. Once we started getting more adoption to larger companies, we built out these network graphs that would show how the product spread from individual to individual and then team to team and got a intuitive mental model of the virality of the product. All that actually helped a lot because we understood the mechanics of the product, which I think informed the metrics we chose later on. But yeah, obviously we instrumented the basic SaaS metrics of churn and revenue and retention, all that. And we use that more for fundraising. But internally, it's only been in the past four years or so that we've really had a more opinionated funnel that we're optimizing around. And I think in the early days, it's very much qualitative customer learning over optimizing metrics. That's really interesting. So when you raised your Series A, were you able to do it by talking about customer love, showing use cases, it was still more product love driven than it was numbers driven at that point. Absolutely. We had customers who raved about the product and we had individual customers where we could show that graph I was talking about before of adoption and say, hey, here are a few cases where we've landed a legit customer and we've seen a lot of growth. And by the way, we have all this positive feedback from individuals who love the product. So it was more on that than metrics. Revenue wasn't a huge part of it. It was more the qualitative and the data points. And for the Series A, it was, are you onto something? And then Series after that is, how do you repeat it and scale it? I wanted to ask you about competition and how you think about competitors. Sometimes founders think about it in terms of jobs to be done or what product is the user firing so that they can hire your product. But how do you think about competitors and how much attention do you think founders should be paying to competitors? For us early on, we didn't have a lot of competition. The nice part was we chose a product category and a product that wasn't super sexy at the time, to be honest. No code wasn't really a thing back in 2012, 2013. Productivity software, B2B SaaS stuff wasn't super sexy. It's very much about consumer social. That afforded us, at least early on, a landscape where there wasn't a lot of direct competition. We did have comparable products, substitutes that customers would use. For example, a spreadsheet or a project management app, do stuff they might do in Airtable on those, but they were very different types of products and roadmaps. We were fortunate to pick a space that didn't have a lot of competition breathing down our neck at all times. That certainly changed recently. The way we approach competition is pay attention and learn from them. Don't copy. And the way I've thought about it before, I used to run cross-country and track in high school. And my coach would always say, 
Don't look behind you. You'll slow down. So just keep your head pointed forward and sense what competition is doing, but don't focus on it too much because you'll lose track of where you're going. The best thing you can do is have your own sense of where the company's moving, the vision for where you want to go and make sure you're going in that direction. But of course, you can learn a lot from other products in the ecosystem and see what cool products are launching and what people are using and how the consumer tastes are adjusting. And I think that's super important. Stay savvy on good product and good business and the broader ecosystem. But I think that's a bit different than focusing on your direct competition and getting into a myopic state of, oh, we got to build this because they did. I think that's counterproductive. Let's get more to the growth phase of things. Airtable is this very horizontal product. It can serve a million different use cases, all kinds of people. How did the horizontal product strategy affect your go-to-market strategy as you thought more about growing? The first answer is it's pretty hard. The go-to-market for a horizontal product, like I talked about before, is hard to describe early on. The way we approached it is opposite of most companies and the way they think about go-to-market. Most companies, they'll start with a super niche audience and expand to new markets. And maybe you start a company that's a vertical dog walking CRM. Maybe you expand to dog groomers and so on and so forth. Start with a very niche audience and find them and you can target them. And then you expand to new markets after that. We had the opposite approach where we started completely horizontal with a blank slate product, more or less. We got more and more narrow with our focus in terms of how do we land customers over time. The first iteration for us, like I said, we were completely horizontal. The second iteration was we started seeing organic adoption for different use cases, whether it was video production or product planning, and we create very specific templates for those. So we had maybe hundreds of templates and we had a template page so people could get started with those use cases. It's really only been the last few years we've gotten really targeted around our marketing and go-to-market motions. Part of that has just been having a much more mature executive team with our CMO Archana, who's on the podcast earlier, and our CRO Seth. They've helped us refine this. We have a much better sense of how we successfully land and expand within a company. We've got much more opinion on that and narrowed the aperture. So we're mostly focused on marketing and product organizations in terms of how we initially landed in a company. And then we know from there, we can expand to all sorts of different departments. Over time, gone from very horizontal and broad in our GTM to more and more narrow over, we're going to land in this department, in this function, and from there, we'll expand to the whole company. It's kind of the opposite of what most companies do. Yeah. So you said phase one was very horizontal. Phase two, you started seeing the pockets of which use cases were working, for example, around video production. And then you leaned in and amplified the content and the templates around that. That sounds like that worked pretty well. Yeah, it did. I think there's a lot of stuff we could have done to make that process faster. We could have leaned in earlier on the place we were seeing traction and been even more opinionated about, hey, here's a solution for this or that. But the approach did work for us. There's probably a lot we could have done to speed it up. There's probably more early customer validation we could have done, talking to those early pockets of usage and then very much marketed the product a lot more to those value props, which we do a lot of now. But if we were to do it again, maybe we'd pick a handful of use cases earlier on and target those a little bit more. Along the way, as you got more focused in your go-to-market, what were the roles that you hired for? Or were there people that you brought into the company who thought in a different way than you had in the past? The most helpful people that helped us crack our go-to-market motion were our early sales team, understanding our customer deeply. A lot of our product team did this as well. And then translating that into what's the actual problem they're trying to solve The interesting part about our sales and CSM teams is that they're going into companies and they have to build a solution for the customer a lot of times or not build it themselves, but work with them to build a custom solution in Airtable. They get really deep insights into 
how do video production processes work? Or how does a product operations workflow work? We really get deep insights from our customer-facing teams. We did a really good job from day one up through today, hiring very smart systems thinkers for our go-to-market functions. We've had a lot of feedback and discovery with customers that we could then pattern match and start to create the marketing collateral and start to refine the product around. But it started with having good people working with customers, be able to translate that back into the product and marketing. Thinking about advice for future founders, especially founders who are creating new horizontal productivity products. You've said we had a hard time explaining what Airtable was in the early days. Users were using us for all kinds of different things. We had a very horizontal growth strategy at the beginning, and then we got more verticalized. What advice would you give? Like, Is it okay for founders to just say, hey, I'm having a hard time explaining what my product is, but that's fine, and people are using it for different things, and that's fine. What have you learned along the way that would turn into advice for a future founder? You can build a horizontal product initially, but as soon as possible, understand where people are getting value from your product and really double down, go meet them, understand what their problems are. When you do see pockets traction, be super fast to hopping on those. There's a balance because you don't want to take the first use case that pops up. If it's not going to be something that's going to grow a lot or not something that's going to fit your longer-term vision of the company, you might not want to spend as much time on that. But as soon as you see some validation that the customer is in the wheelhouse of what your broader vision is for the product, completely double down on them and co-build the product with them. I've seen a lot more companies do that recently and it works out really well. So I think you can build a horizontal product approach with deep customer understanding and building for that specific function or department or use case. It's just a matter of you can't go too deep on it. If you build a hyper-specific app for one function, it's not going to capitalize in the broader vision you had for a horizontal product. Understand the problems and you can generalize those into capabilities that might solve a bunch of different use cases, get these data points from customers, and then pattern match that with your broader vision for where you see the product going and the broader horizontal platform you're trying to build. Thanks so much for taking us through everything you guys have done and how you got here. I want to talk a little bit about what's next for you. Airtable's come such a long way. Where do you go from here? And what are the areas that you see Airtable expanding into? These have been themes for us for the past few years, and we're not moving away from them anytime soon. But one is we're constantly trying to make the product easier to use. And that's both for the person that's building apps on top of Airtable, as well as the end user who's using those apps that they build. That's a constant process for us. How do we make the product easier to use? How do we make it easier to deploy these to people in your organization? That's a continual focus and I think always will be for Airtable. The second piece is pretty obvious, but we're focusing on the enterprise and our customers who are running large departmental and company-wide processes on Airtable and they get tremendous value from it. They have powerful sources of truth in Airtable and are running mission-critical processes. So there's a lot we have to do around larger scale, better permissions, all the things you'd expect from scaling into large enterprise processes and departments. The other one is a big part of what Airtable does is it breaks down data silos. If you look at a modern organization, they all have hundreds of vertical applications that each have their own silos of data. With Airtable, you can put a lot of data into this common data platform, on top of which different departments and teams can build their own applications that still connect to that same data and keep teams aligned. Something that we're evolving into more and more is how do we get that useful data into Airtable? How do we let our customers pull their most valuable data sources or store them in Airtable and then let many different teams build on top of that? I know you've been successful over the years and recently, especially moving into bigger and bigger companies and having Airtable be such an integral part of how large companies operate. 
One thing that a lot of startups run into as they move up market is that you get larger customers, you get more complex use cases, but you still want to keep the product approachable to all your users. How do you think about navigating that tension? A couple points there. One is that some companies make a product super complex and inaccessible to most end users because they have maybe the wrong incentives. This happens when a company starts selling top down to IT and that's their only way to acquire new customers. You end up building the product to check a bunch of feature boxes for IT, but it's not going to be the friendliest offer to end users. That's not the customer you're optimizing for. For us, it's different because we very much have a go-to-market motion where we land individuals on teams who are building for their departments. That's the lifeblood of our business. Letting people who are not always in the IT department build apps and deploy them to their teams. It's critical for us to continue to make the product easier and easier to adopt those line of business customers. All that said, we are building for IT too, so they can govern Airtable and have it be something they can use to empower their teams. The second part is there are a lot of different personas in a large enterprise. For us, there's the person building the application. There's the person consuming it. There's the person in IT who's managing a lot of deployments of Airtable. And you can split the complexity up between those personas and have separate surface areas where if you're the end user, you shouldn't have to see all the stuff that's built for IT. Or if you're the person building the app, maybe you don't have to see all the admin stuff either information architecture stuff and understanding those personas that I think helps you contain complexity for the different audiences within a large organization. That's a really cool way to think about it. You laid out some of the big strategic initiatives that you're pursuing or where you all are spending your time. How do you decide what those things should be? You come into 2022 and you're like, hey, these are the big things that we're going to try to do this year. How do you decide what those should be? It's something we've gotten a lot better at each year and we're constantly refining but I think we do a pretty good job of longer-term planning. We have a three-year vision for the product broken down into yearly segments. And then each half, we have a set of OKRs for the company. And then teams have their quarterly OKRs. We do have a pretty good cascade at this point. But I think more importantly, it starts with the customer. Like, What is the value they get out of Airtable? How can we make it even better? How do we continue to let them build useful things in Airtable and scale within their organizations? It's very customer-focused, spending a lot of time with our sales team, understanding the customer problems, talking to them ourselves. That's a big component. Another component is balancing the day-to-day execution with keeping the broader vision and like that three-year flag in the ground in mind. Myself and Howie and the rest of the executive team spend a lot of time thinking about what's the vision for the next three years and what's the vision for the next five years. So we're getting more and more deliberate about making sure we make the space for that longer-term thinking and have those flags in the ground, but at the same time are tactically moving and fixing customer problems as much as possible in the quarter-by-quarter, half-by-half, year-by-year timeframe. You got me really excited about the three-year vision. What do you think is different about Airtable three years from now? We're thinking of Airtable more and more as a connected apps platform, and that's the category we're defining What that means is we want to give individual teams and departments control over building and deploying their own software, while at the same time connecting to shared data sets and shared tables that help to break down silos within organizations. Some of our customers, they have their key products in Airtable, whether it's an athletic wear company that has all of their athletic wear in a single source of truth. And from that, individual teams can build their marketing calendar that pulls in all those products in the roadmap, or the production team can pull that data set in as well. 
The vision for us is how do we let organizations and empower people in departments and line of business owners to build software for the teams that make sense for the processes they're running, while at the same time plugging into the broader organizational data and breaking down those silos that we see more and more with 100 different vertical applications for each department, none of which connect together. That's really what we're pushing towards and a small piece of the vision to come. Yeah, I think it's incredible. You've been at this for something like 10 years. And you started with this idea of software creation and making that accessible to more people. And now 10 years later, you're on this idea of connected apps platform, which is very true to that same vision, it feels like to me. I just think that's remarkable that over that long period of time, you've really held true to the vision that you started with. Were there times along the way that things changed or ended up going a different direction than what you had envisioned? For the most part, we've had the vision of letting people build their own software. That's definitely been a constant. Pretty early on, we thought that maybe the way customers would adopt the product is that they would use it for a consumer use case. Maybe they'd use it for their to-do app or shopping list on mobile and then bring it to work. And that was partially inspired by what were the hot SaaS companies at the time, like Evernote and Dropbox. And that was their adoption model. For maybe a year or so, we built a little bit too much for pure consumer at-home productivity use cases. Later on, realize that a database and a collaborative database is really useful where you have to run a repeatable process or coordinate the efforts of many. And those use cases tend to happen in the workplace and people get a ton of value out of them. So we very much shifted our focus towards the work side of things. That was maybe a bit of a misstep that set us back a few months. So, But at the time, it was less obvious that you can build a product that really empowers individuals and a team for the enterprise. That's the balance and The thing we're doing now is bringing this consumer-grade experience to individuals in the enterprise and giving them a power to build. That's where the value is for us. Andrew, thank you so much for being here today. You covered so much and it was really fun geeking out with you on the little product details. I'm just so impressed with the product that you've built over these 10 years and staying true to your idea on software creation and allowing more and more people to get the power of programming. Congrats on all of Airtable's success and thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Todd. I've always been a huge fan of First Round and have read a lot of your content. It's been super helpful to us on our journey. So really happy to give back and really enjoyed being on the show.